Turn with me to the book of Micah in the Old Testament. Some of you have been around for the last three weeks as we've started this fall sermon series. It's on page 756 in the Blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. I'll be reading there in a minute. If you're just joining us for the first time in this series, we are in this 11-week sermon series on the Old Testament prophet Micah. Micah has a long ministry, over 40 years, starting around 740 B.C., and uh, the context of his time is wartime in the Middle East. The area is under incredible upheaval. The northern part of the split kingdom has been destroyed. Samaria had Armageddon come upon it, and its people largely carted off into exile to the uh, kingdom of Assyria. And the people of Judah to the south heard the commotion next door, witnessed the violence as Samaria, the capital city of the north, was being destroyed, and now they fear for their own lives. And during Micah's long ministry, the enemy is getting closer, and all the town is destroyed until Jerusalem is pretty much the only place left. When we talk about the prophet Micah, or any other prophet, we need to be careful to understand what the prophet's role was primarily intended to be, called by God. The prophet's job was not primarily to foretell, to predict the future. For, we're very familiar with the forecasts in the evening news, which is telling ahead, predicting what tomorrow will look like. That's not what a prophet's main job was. The prophet's main job was to foretell to speak forth the Word of God, to reveal God's truth as a message to His people. And so, my job standing here today, especially behind this pulpit, is similar to a prophet's role. It's a prophet-like role with one huge difference. With Micah and his peers, God revealed new truth through their ministry. Those sermons were fresh, never before heard. They were directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what God wanted, not only spoken to those people, but recorded for all of later history. Those are prophets with a capital P, uppercase P. But biblical preaching, uh, although it's like it, is different in that it flows out of the already revealed truth of God in the Bible. It doesn't expand upon that truth. It fits within it. And so, uh, a prophet preacher is really one with a lowercase p, not equivalent, but like it in its role. Whether you're an uppercase p prophet or a lowercase p prophet, though, the temptation very often is common to say what the people want you to say instead of what God would have you say. That's the context of our passage this morning from Micah chapter 2. We read the beginning and end last week. We're going to look at the middle and finish with the same verses. Listen carefully. These are God's words. By the way, um, just to, as a guide, the, the first verse will be Micah quoting other false prophets, and then he has a word, and then we're going to hear from the Lord Himself. Uh, most of that is uh, in quotes. Here's the Word of God. Micah 2, verse 6, do not prophesy, their prophets say, do not prophesy about these things. 
disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does He do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, speak a word to us freshly from this very same word that Micah spoke hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Speak a fresh word, Lord, as your same spirit who inspired him enables us to understand and apply to our lives. We trust you because of Jesus. Amen. Start with prosperity and affirmation. As I said in the first verse that I read, uh, Micah quotes the false prophets, verse 6. Don't prophesy about these things. Don't, don't preach like that. Disaster will not overtake us. That's the the accusation that they're making, they don't like what he's preaching, this bad news that God has him delivering. And it's not anything new. We hear the same criticism today of, of faithful preachers of God's Word. Don't be so negative. People today need affirmation. Why do you have to bring, drag people down and talking about sin and, and God's judgment? Build up. Don't tear down. I found this quote. Faith activates God. Fear activates the enemy. Please don't write that down. <laughs> That's straight out of a prosperity preacher's mouth, and it gives me the preacher heebie-jeebies to hear that. Faith activates God, like, like God needs batteries, like, like He needs a jump start, like He's passively lying around like Sheriff Woody waiting for somebody to pull his string. Faith does not activate God. This sort of pithy bumper sticker-like religiosity usually doesn't flow out of Scripture when we look at it more closely. So we need to be careful here, not to fall off either side of the biblically balanced message especially when Micah is bringing such bad news. How do we take it? How do we apply it? We need to avoid, on one hand, harshness. We need to avoid messages of judgment without mercy. We, we shouldn't be talking repentance, repentance, repentance without also pointing people to the forgiveness and freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. We shouldn't allow guilt and shame to be exposed in the light of Christ without pointing people to the truth that through faith in Him, guilt and shame have been nailed to the cross. They've been dealt with 
finally and fully. On the other hand, when we hear bad news that Micah's delivering, we need to avoid pushing it all away and falling into something like the prosperity gospel, health and wealth preaching, which is also a distortion of the gospel. That teaches that God rewards faith with greater blessing of health or financial gain. And and in many countries where Christians are actively, openly persecuted, that prosperity message is actually a greater danger to the vitality of the Christian church. Like so many of our instinctive reactions to Micah's tough message in a foreign context in 700 BC, we might be tempted to think, I don't do that. I don't fall for that kind of false teaching. I don't read those books. I don't flip to those obscure cable channels and and watch these people teach and preach. But the more subtle version of the prosperity gospel is everywhere. It flows out of an unreasonable Christianized expectation of only blessing and grace and mercy accompanied by an allergy to suffering and struggle in obedience and calls to holiness and repentance. That's a big reason why so many wholesome Christian-y books fly off the shelves. I I can think of uh, 20 years ago, um, a book called The Prayer of Jabez sold tens of millions of copies at $10 a piece for like 60 pages because of this quote of Scripture, bless me and enlarge my territory. Yes, you'll find that in the Bible. No, that does not become a slogan for all of life. People went out in droves to buy this book in the hopes of getting a chance at rubbing that little genie lamp. Maybe my territory will be enlarged. Maybe God will smile upon me in my whatever endeavors they were hoping for blessing. A different example, uh, not about uh, financial blessing necessarily, is this year's Girl, Stop Apologizing. Some of you know this book, Following Girl, Wash Your Face. She's a professing Christian who wrote this non-offensive, motivational self-help. And perhaps more dangerously, People make it a substitute for the real thing. It sounds perfectly tolerable. It sounds like it can fit into a a life of faith. A Gospel Coalition review said this, Hollis's message is, quote, all that really matters is how bad you want those dreams and what you're willing to do to make that happen. That's become so common because it, it seems to fit well into the, the message of the American dream. Isn't that what we want for our children? And it starts sounding just right. But th- this is not unlike how Ken started our service. If you're a follower of Jesus, if, if you value the, the, the words spoken by God to His people for all times, you need to pay attention to Jesus saying something very different. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's not going to sell any motivational self-help books. 
That's not going to um, make for a great uh, best-selling bumper sticker, pithy religious slogan, because that's not what Americans want. Denying self and dying in self-sacrificial love. Here's the contrast that we can't avoid. The true biblical gospel says Jesus has done it all because you can't and you haven't. Hollis's message says this, believe in yourself because you have what it takes to do it all. You can do it. We, we said last week that idolatry and false worship are always self-oriented. They're self-focused. And when the message reinforces faith in self, when that strong, empowered person, admit it, we tend to admire people like that. We tend to instinctively want to be like them. When that strong, empowered person begins to preach that message and absorb it and grow in faith in self, inevitably they fall for the delusion that they do not need God whatsoever. He becomes irrelevant. Some would say, maybe you're thinking this morning, quote, don't prophesy about these things. Verse 6, disgrace will not overtake us. What's wrong with staying positive? That was the problem they had with Micah bearer of bad news. Here's another context to consider. Our kids. I, I mean, not personally necessarily, but the next generation. Our kids. The last thing they need is for adults to teach them to have faith in themselves. I know that's a little bit provocative to say, and I need to be careful here to explain what I mean. I'll say it again, though, first. The last thing our kids need is for the adults in their lives to teach them to have faith in themselves. But that's happening every day, all day long, extracurricular, and in the classroom. What's wrong with helping a kid to have self-confidence and a measure of self-respect and a belief that he or she can accomplish many things? I would say, what's wrong? Nothing and potentially everything. There's the biblical balance that we need to be very intentional to try to figure out and discern by the Spirit. It, it, when I say what's wrong, nothing, here's what I mean. It, if a child needs affirmation of God-given dignity, give it to them. Celebrate it. If a child needs positivity to help them heal from damaging messages spoken to them, by all means, pour it into them, encourage and build up. That's not what I'm saying is bad. But what I'm warning about is a constant affirmation that sounds right. It doesn't set off any alarms. What I'm warning about is a constant affirmation of self, keyword, that feeds, that fertilizes self-righteousness. If you're constantly affirming the child without regard for their bad decisions or disobedience or disrespect, that's not constructive, that's destructive. You're tearing down. You're not displaying grace. You're deceiving because you are calling something that is not good, good and beautiful and of God. 
That's devastating to our next generation. Real grace involves a different kind of affirmation that is constructive. It builds up that which lasts. And and this is what it affirms. Micah would find this very familiar. It affirms that your sin is real and that it will lead to death. That's the most important thing it affirms. You say, how, that's, how is that constructive? How does that build up? Well, it doesn't stop there. It starts with telling you that in your sin, you reject God and that He would be in His rights in true justice to allow you to experience the full consequences of your sin, which is death, physical and spiritual. But God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, makes you alive with Christ if you believe that Jesus took your place. He went to the cross to suffer the penalty that your sins deserved. He received the justice of the Father so that you through faith might taste mercy instead. That affirmation does not make you think more of yourself. It makes you think most of Christ as you think less of yourself, indirectly proportional. That affirmation means pride and arrogance that we might unintentionally feed and fertilize are replaced with a deep humility, with a grief over sin. I caused Jesus to suffer hell. But then it also brings that kind of affirmation, a grateful heart and a confidence that Christ is all I need. I am nothing without Him. I am everything with Him. Christ's esteem, not self-esteem, is what our children need to be equipped with to deal with life. Christ's esteem, not self-esteem, builds security of identity in our children that, that strengthens them against rejection and failure and criticism which will come with life, not just this sort of um, rote, believe in yourself and reject everyone who gets in your way. Take a look at verse 11, where God says this, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. One of our elders reading this sent me some uh, comments on Micah, uh, put it this way. He said, this is as close as Scripture gets to being snarky, and I think he's dead on. Is God being sarcastic? If he is, he's allowed to. (laughs) Um, Kids, you know how you uh, might design an avatar to represent you in a video game? Or um, teens and adults, you, you might... Um, pick a logo or um, a picture in your camera roll or, or some kind of slogan to represent your social media presence, right? So, so people know who's posting these things. If people had access to what I'll call a, a design a preacher app, a very dangerous idea, this is what he or she would look like. He would always deliver messages, verse 11, of plenty of wine and beer, 
or insert whatever might thrill you, satisfy you, hit that craving. A life of plenty, a life of ease and comfort. You know, those sermons can fill seats. Those sermons can, can make a, a, a church appear to be spiritually vital. What's going on over there? People want comfort and coddling, never rebuke. All affirmation and cheerleading with no correction and coaching and discipling. The stock market will always go up. Your team will always win, I hope, tonight. And tomorrow will be sunny, 72, and a light breeze. That's the delusion of hunting after and being drawn to that which builds up, supposedly, even though it's tearing down. If that's what you're looking for, by the way, I am sorry to tell you, we don't have that on the menu here at GRC. We will not feed you poison that will slowly kill you. That leads to, uh, secondly, be strong in grace. There's a psychological theory I came across that believes that human behavior can be captured um, under five dimensions of personality. There's extroversion, there's conscientiousness, neuroticism, openness to new experience, and agreeableness. When I heard this, the fifth one was what uh, got my attention and I believe is most directly relevant uh, this morning. If somebody is low on the agreeable scale, number five, the term, doesn't take a rocket scientist, is they're disagreeable. But being disagreeable is not what it sounds like. A disagreeable person is not obnoxious. They don't uh, contend, uh, cause conflict at every turn. They don't look like a grump all the time, necessarily at least. The, The disagreeable person is less dependent on or less interested in the approval of others. They're not worried about what people think of them. They don't shape their behavior and their words based on what will bring the positive response from other people. They say what they believe is the truth. When I heard this, I thought to myself, I was in the car, I think I'm disagreeable. (laughs) That's a dangerous thing for a preacher to admit from the pulpit. I have a feeling this canon will be used against me for the rest of my life. But I thought to myself, I think I'm disagreeable. Listen to the Apostle Paul in uh, likely, or in, in definitely the last recorded words of his life, recorded. We don't know what else he said. He wrote this to his son in the faith, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, 
Keep your head in all, circ- uh, in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul has been in prison for a while by the time he writes this, and he knows he's about to die for his faith in Christ. We might think to ourselves, if there's ever a time to shape your speech in order to please others, in order to avoid conflict, especially between your neck and a blade, it's now, Paul. It's okay. Why is Paul instead disagreeable to the end? Why does he not care what's going to happen to him? He's going to lose his life based on what he's saying, how he's, how he's behaving. And why is he urging Timothy to do the same? Because he, as he wrote earlier, chapter 1, verse 12, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. His very life, his identity, everything important. I know whom I have believed and that he is able, I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the very end. How is Paul disagreeable to the end and urging Timothy to do the same? Because he trusts for himself what he urges of Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be confident in who God has declared you to be because you are in Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy know each I am a redeemed sinner, and I am promised resurrection, and I will live. I will taste victory on the last day. Christ's esteem, not self-esteem, matters to the very end. This week's Voice of Grace was written by Erica, and it included these words. I think back to the first few months my husband and I attended GRC. Here was a pastor from the pulpit and people in the congregation who talked openly of the ugliness of sin and the importance of the cross. It seemed perfectly normal to recognize that we were all fallen and broken people actually in need of a Savior. Our sin is grievous and real, and thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, He has not left us to bear it alone. What especially encouraged me was to hear this and remember and realize freshly that it seems that God has shaped in many of us here at Grace Redeemer Church a gift of grace to His bride, the church. It seems that God has shaped in many of us over these years a gospel disagreeableness. We don't quite care what other people will think of us. At some level, that has characterized over 45 grace story givers Not preachers whose job it is to do this, but people like you who have stood right here or at the pulpit in Teaneck, where we formerly were, and have shared with transparency and vulnerability often of failure and doubt and suffering and pain, but always with a message of, but God is greater than my sin. They've displayed confidence in who they are in Christ. They've displayed confidence that God's grace is sufficient for them in their weakness. If we're disagreeable, praise God, 
because it's a gospel fruit by grace. Here at Grace Redeemer Church, we are committed to being authentic in our aim at sin, our own, and yes, sometimes carefully, each other's, but not with a Bible hammer to nail you down. Instead, with a mirror to help you see who you really are, to, to affirm what is most true of, of us and of Christ, and then with a window after the mirror to give you a fresh glimpse of glory made possible through faith and a suffering, dying, and then risen Savior. Real prosperity only comes through the glory of the cross. That's where we end. I heard it just this past week. Why is God so angry in the Old Testament? And the beginning of my response would be a, a few questions in response connected to what we talked about last week. Why do you get angry if your four-year-old comes home beca crying because she was mocked by her teacher in front of the class? Why do you get angry? Why do you get angry at a judge who sentences a convicted rapist to only six months in prison? What's, what's there to be upset about? Why so angry at an institution that has allowed child molesters to have access continually to children over decades? Why are you so upset? That's not the way the world is supposed to be. That's why. Injustice offends. And yes, it sometimes outrages. It's a word that's linked to anger. It's outrageous. So why is it surprising that a holy God, perfect in love and wisdom and goodness and the epitome of beauty and everything that is of life, why is it surprising that that kind of God, the only God, would get angry at the truth-denying, life-and-love-rejecting, kingship-overthrowing faithlessness of His creation. Why is it surprising? Righteous justice aimed at sin, which explains everything wrong with this world, is the only right response. How can God not get angry at sin? not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. The bad news that Micah delivers is just. It's right. It's appropriate. Maybe we can even use the word. It's fair. God affirms what's true. Rebellion in sin is a rejection of life, and it's a choice of death. You want that, God says? Have it your way. But God will not allow exile to have the last word, but God will not allow the cross, a Roman ingenious invention that brings torturous death, but God will not allow the cross to become a symbol of victory for evil. After the bad news, he offers really good news. We saw this last week, verses 12 and 13, glory after the gloom, tell us that God will gather the remnant, 
the few faithful who are left, and he will bring them home. He will restore them. He'll do this through a new shepherd king. And we find out in the New Testament, John chapter 10, that this good shepherd doesn't act like every other shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. That doesn't mean on the cross, God just gets over his anger. Doesn't mean he's gotten it out of his system and now he's good. Now he's back, he's present, he's centered. No, the glory of the cross is revealed when justice and mercy meet at the cross. This is how righteous anger upon sin on one hand and merciful forgiveness and compassion coexist in the same God, in the same act on the cross and maintain perfect consistency with his character. At the cross, the Father poured out full justice, divine wrath on the Son, though He was innocent. At the cross, the Son went willingly, though you and I are the ones who should be there, suffering for our own sin. If you know that about yourself, and if you believe that Jesus served as your substitute, though he didn't deserve any of it, then the God of Micah delights to extend mercy to you. He's maintained his justice. Sin was punished through the Son. And he is still the God of mercy and compassion, desiring to draw you close. Maybe you've been busy in life chasing after self-glory, believing that you have all it takes. Exile is the only result that will come. And it's not only lonely, it forfeits every blessing that God longs to give to you. But you're never too far, and it's never too late. Trust in this Christ, the shepherd king, and he will bring you home, and he'll satisfy you body and soul. Let's pray. God, give us courage to face the bad news, especially when we look in the mirror. Let us not fall for the pithy, fast foody affirmations of our culture that might make us feel good for a day or a week or a month, but leave us crashed after that sugar high, worse off than before. Build us up, Lord, with that which truly lasts, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.